the Marvel Cinematic Universe. The biggest pop culture movement since the Beatles, $22.5 billion at the box office, and we found the one guy who doesn't have a clue what we're talking about. With two fellow MCU nerds to help guide his hand along the way, one thing is for certain, we're with him until the end of the line. Welcome to Colin Brain versus the MCU. On your left. Hello and welcome to your new favourite MCU podcast designed for your ear holes. We are now three films into this saga and we haven't even scratched the surface of what is to come. I assume you all know the drill by now, so I shall start by introducing my fellow MCU nerd and MCU nerd to be. So firstly, he is the demon in my bottle. He's the man that puts Vanko in Wanker. It's Robert Trot. Say hello, Rob. <laughs> hello, Rob. I, I do I understand that makes no sense whatsoever. <laughs> it doesn't, though. <laughs> and last but not least, he is the pepper to my pots. It's Colin Brain. Seller, say hello, Colin. Seller. Yeah, hello, mate. How you doing? Seller. <laughs> Seller, Colin. Seller. <laughs> how are we all? Doing well, mate. How, how are you boys doing? I'm, I'm good. I've got a pint of orange squash. Yes. I've watched Iron Man 2 today. I'm fired up. <laughs> <laughs> I'm high on life. Oh, good. Right, so we haven't changed any scores since last week then? Like, are we sticking to our new rule that no scores are now being changed? You're the only one that's ever broken Mate, that rule, that was, that was the rule from day one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It was just me that messed it up. Yeah, yes, yeah. okay, then I still very much stand behind my score for the Incredible Hulk. But let's not forget, though, we do we have one each. Is that what we said last week? Yeah, and one you each one. And you, you've used your one already. Oh, so I, me, I, me and, I can't remember. Oh, maybe okay, we didn't say that, but I think that's a good idea, right? So yeah. me and Rob have still like technically it. got if it's one not change. The rule, it, it is now. Yeah, it is now, yeah. Yeah. I like that, yeah. So you've already yeah, used yours, mate. Unlucky. Yeah, I'm yeah. fine with that. <laughs> I'm not giving Iron Man. What did I give it? Three? Three and a half? No, it's a four-star film. Uh, so, Wait, what was it you uh, said last week? You said it was a hoot. Is that what you said? <laughs> no, it wasn't a hoot. What was it? You said something that was... I probably said hoot. I, uh, yeah. It is a hoot. <laughs> Sounds like something you'd come out with. <laughs> I like the word caper as well. It's huh? a caper. You've used that a lot. I use caper a lot. Isn't mm. that in tartar sauce? Capers. Capers are, <laughs> yes. Yeah. They are a salty ingredient for tartar sauce. But yeah. a caper is like a fun adventure sort of wow. thing. Like an escapade. An mm. escapade. There you go. So, Colin, how are you finding this endeavour so far? Are you are you regretting your decision? Are you looking forward to the road ahead? Yeah, you know what, man? I actually am. I'm enjoying this. Yeah, it's nice. Mm. I'm enjoying just getting together once a week and, like, you know, recording a podcast is great fun. That, yeah, also, it's, it's a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. And, and I'm not going to lie, man. I'm, I'm, I'm enjoying just the idea of um, almost being forced into sitting down and watching something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because with my, um, with my sort of lifestyle, I don't really have that much time to just stop, you know? So um, mm. For the listener's sake, we're not doing like a Clockwork Orange style thing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like he's watching them of his own free will. When yeah. he says forced, we haven't, <laughs> yeah. we're not there the, the, physically. The, the reason I enjoy this once a week is because I get let out of my dark room for an hour to record a podcast before I get put back in it again. But no, I'm having fun, man. This has been good. Very good to hear. Uh, what about you, Rob? Are you enjoying seeing this all over again? Oh, yes. It's bringing back lots of memories of when I first saw them a lot of the time mm. um f- fun fact 
you can debate amongst yourselves at another time whether it's fun or not. <laughs> I saw this at a cinema whilst wearing an Iron Man t-shirt that made it look like I had a chest plate myself. It was pretty cool. Then I went to a party after and failed to woo a woman. Fun times. <laughs> Have you still got the t-shirt? No, it has can long try, since... Can you try and get a replica of it and then take a picture, please? <laughs> I can please. try. Because can we get it the same this. size so it's like really <laughs> yeah. tight and ill-fitted? Pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. Right, so... As always, gents, if you could be so kind as to let me have the floor for a few minutes as we provide a background both to Colin and our listeners, uh, a little background to Iron Man 2. Yeah, I hope you answer some of the questions I've got in my head already. I hope so too. No um, pressure. If I don't, then me and Rob are here once this little recap's done. Or interject at any time, I don't Will mind. Do, mate. Yeah, go for it. So far, so good. Skip the compliments. Let's get on with it. So... Yeah, Iron Man 1 was obviously released in May 2008, and it was such a hit that Marvel Studios immediately greenlit its sequel, and they set its release date for April 2010. So it had barely been out a week before Marvel then started work on Iron Man 2, with less than two years for the film to be written, cast, shot, and go through post-production. That is almost unheard of nowadays. I mean, it's almost impossible to shoot a film and have it complete post-production in less than two years, let alone have the script be completed within that time too. What didn't help matters as well is that they didn't even know again what the storyline was going to be. So yet again, much like Iron Man 1, the original plan was to have the Mandalorian... (laughs) (laughs) Was it? Star Wars. I'll start again. So <laughs> Johnny Favs, though. <sighs> Mandalorian. <clears throat> so yet again, much like Iron Man 1, the original plan was to have the Mandarin be the villain. Uh, various pitches were heard as to how to portray this villain, shall we say, sensitively. But with the clock ticking, they again decided to shelve the idea of the Mandarin. Now, throughout the whole process, John Favreau, who is back in the director's chair for the sequel, and Robert Downey Jr. discussed the different comic arcs or various different issues that they found compelling. So Robert Downey Jr. proposed the idea that they adapt one of the most famous arcs in Iron Man history. It was one called Demon in a Bottle. The arc was fairly villain-like, and it mainly focused on Tony Stark's biggest enemy, himself as it dealt with um, Tony's alcoholism. Now, the arc was obviously close to Downey's heart, having his own personal battles in the past as well, but when Marvel got wind that Demon in a Bottle was being adapted, they obviously had concerns. They were making a multi-million blockbuster here, and Favreau and Downey seemed to be creating something that was, unfortunately in Marvel's words, controversial. So whilst the story was being developed... Uh, Casting also got underway and contract negotiations started with Terence Howard, who played Rhodey in the first Iron Man. Next time, baby. Next time, baby. That that, that was one of the things I was going to ask you guys because it (laughs) Mm -hmm. it surprised me quite a bit. And I I wanted to know what, if any, what the reasons were. So go ahead, mate. They're sort of known. Now, uh, Terence Howard was actually a, a considerably bigger star than Robert Downey Jr. when the first film was being created. So much so that he actually received more money than Robert Downey Jr. for Iron Man 1. Now, because the first Iron, the, the first Iron Man movie was such an experiment, um, Terence Howard was only contracted for one film. So when negotiations begun for the sequel, 
He did ask for an even bigger pay this time around, and all the talks just started to break down. And it resulted in Terence Howard simply just leaving the project. Uh, To this day, it's still unclear as to whether Howard was told he was not returning or whether he left the project himself. But either way, that role was then recast with Don Cheadle. Not next time, baby. Not next time, baby. (laughs) (laughs) Now, Marvel, they didn't want any issues like this happening again. So then decided from now on, to create contracts for their casts, to sign them into multi-film deals, which then unfortunately led to another roadblock for this film. So now in the first couple of drafts of the script in Iron Man 2, there was no Nick Fury, but Marvel, obviously wanting to do an Avengers movie somewhere down the line, asked Favreau and Downey Jr. and the screenwriter Justin Theroux to include Nick Fury in the film. Now, Samuel L. Jackson, obviously having appeared as Nick Fury in the post credit scene for Iron Man 1, was more than happy to return for Iron Man 2. But then Marvel approached him with a contract that, upon reading it, contained the words nine-picture contract, meaning they wanted him to assign for a total of nine films across the MCU. And then, of course, talks broke down, which resulted in Samuel L. Jackson actually walking away from the project for a couple of months before eventually, luckily, coming back and signing on. So nowadays, it's entirely commonplace that when an actor joins the MCU, that their contract is either a six-film contract or a nine-film contract. Even if you're playing a villain, it just gives Marvel like a hassle-free future in case audiences end up falling for them. Uh, But of course, sometimes people sign these massive contracts and are only ever in one film. Uh, It just allows a bit of creative freedom for... Marvel for any future MCU projects. So now we come to the last two people to join the cast. We've got Mickey Rourke as Ivan Vanko, otherwise known as Whiplash. Uh, is he ever even referred to as Whiplash in no, the film? He's I not. Is I didn't pick up. He's on an that. amalgamation of um, two characters: the Crimson Dynamo and Whiplash. In that, I think Vanko was the Crimson Dynamite, and the other name he has on his thing was Boris there was originally going to be like two Russian villains in the film Hmm. and one was going to be this Boris character who is I get mixed up who's Whiplash and who's Crimson Dynamo two Hmm. Russian characters two villains and they sort of um, squished them into Mickey Rourke merged him into one Hmm. so casting wise as well and lastly much like Nick Fury Marvel also told the creative team behind the script to include Black Widow, who, again, I don't think he's ever referred to as Black Widow in the film. Uh, So Emily Blunt was actually initially cast as the super spy Natasha Romanoff. The only problem was she was scheduled to be filming Govler's Travels with Jack Black the exact same time that filming for Iron Man 2 was scheduled. So then there's that horrible word again, contract. Now, as she had already signed on the dotted line for Gulliver's Travels, she had to eventually, uh, unfortunately, leave the project. You could say she was Roman off it. Oh, my God. Roman off set. <laughs> Roman off the project, yeah. We yeah, get it. It works. We get it. <laughs> <laughs> um, and obviously that left room for Scarlett Johansson to take the role. Now, I do hate to sound like a broken record here, especially as an MCU fan myself, but the shooting of Iron Man 2 was not actually a pleasant experience. Again, 
apparently there was just a case of too many chefs in the kitchen. So you had John Favreau and Robert Downey Jr. Like I said, they wanted to make a film about Stark coming to terms with his own mortality. How would Tony react if he thought he only had weeks left to live? Whereas Marvel were obviously trying to build a universe and create setups for future films and plot lines. So think of like the really awkward moment when uh, Agent Coulson is told to babysit Stark, but then like two scenes later, he tells him he's off to New Mexico on a top secret mission. That actually has no relevance to Iron Man 2 whatsoever. Um, so I've got a quote here from the cinematographer of the film, Matthew Libertique. He says... It was almost more important to establish the future characters than it was to tell this narrative. So that film, mm. ultimately, if you look back on it, there's some entertaining things about it, and I really enjoyed making it. But I was serving more than one master. But maybe rightly so. I'm not going to say it was wrong, because who doesn't want to see Samuel L. Jackson play Nick Fury? Who doesn't want to see Scarlett Johansson as Black Widow? These are all cool things. So even when filming was taking place, there was rumours on various film gossip websites that Mickey Rourke had as well had actually fallen out with Marvel. It was all to do surrounding with like Mickey Rourke wanting to create, uh, and quite rightly so again, a, a more three-dimensional character. It's safe to say that Mickey Rourke does not return for any future MCU films. Oh, don't spoil it for him. I know. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, He has even been recently quoted as saying, when I did Ivan Vanko in Iron Man, I explained to Justin Theroux, the writer, and to Jon Favreau, that I wanted to bring some other layers and colours to the character, not just make this Russian a complete murderous, revenging bad guy. And they actually did allow me to do that. Unfortunately, the people at Marvel just wanted a one-dimensional bad guy. So most of my performance ended up on the floor. But Can you guys hear that? <laughs> Audio commentary fact. One of those such things that he fought over, according to the commentary, which, on a side note, Johnny Favs is a lovely commentary host. He's very, very respectful of his cast and not creepy about his female <laughs> cast members. He, uh, when he's talking about Scarlett Johansson, he's talking about the six months of planning she did on her, you know, stunts and rehearsing and all the hard work she put in. He's not saying anything remotely creepy. Lovely. <laughs> Good. So yeah, he said that Mickey Rourke was very insistent on the shot in the opening montage of the parrot drinking vodka. And he said it has to be in the movie. And apparently he would ask John Favreau once a day, as you were. Whether that was in the film. Yeah, it was in the film. I mean, is it? I can't even remember if you see the parrot drinking vodka. I don't remember that either. Mm. It was important. (laughs) You guys not paying attention. (laughs) (laughs) Not paying attention, obviously. Uh, So, saying all of this, though, The film was actually received quite well critically and by the fans as well. The main consensus being that although it wasn't maybe as fun or as fresh as the first film, this was still funny, exciting, it contained a great performance by Robert Downey Jr. It took $628 million at the box office. Even the first Iron Man took like $420 million. So even though the seed planting for like future films with, was met with the with, was met with angst from maybe the writers, the fanboys and some of the audience as well were left like frothing at the mouth, really. And I think it's also worth saying that once this came out, uh, John Favreau did say he would be unlikely to return to direct any future instalments. Um, 
He didn't really fall out with Marvel. Uh, he did say he did have his eye on any future Avenger movie if it was to happen. So he wanted Marvel to put his name in the ring. But he also did say, and bless him, pardon the pun, he was happy to return as Happy Hogan if there was any other future, uh, future I see Iron what Man you did projects there. as well. I know. I'm not as good <laughs> as you. Um, I see. So, after all of that, thank you for being patient. Colin, what did you think? I, I actually enjoyed this one. I, Great. I, yeah, I preferred it to Iron Man 1. I wow. Thought, yeah, yeah, I did. I, um, I thought it was a really good example of how, how, you, how you should do a sequel. I mm. thought... I thought it took the things that I didn't quite like from the first one. I, I think one of the, I mean, one of the main issues I had with the first one was that there wasn't enough action, and it was a bit too much of him sort of shaking his hands around at loads of virtual screens and loads mm-hmm. of slow motion shots of him as Iron Man suit coming on and stuff. And there was still obviously bits of that, but I felt like it was there was more action. It was, mm. was overall, I, yeah, I just enjoyed it. I enjoyed That's it more. Very, yeah. very good to hear, Rob. What about you? What did you think? I agree. There's a lot in there to like. And I think you can see there was like deeper moments in it. Like there's the themes of, you know, the sins of the father with both Ivan and um, Tony's dads and what they've passed on to their sons, like their vendettas or their, you know, destructive Mm. sides and things. There was all this kind of interesting stuff. Tony coming to terms with the, you know, relationship with Howard, all that stuff, you can tell that they were sort of wanting to focus on that. And there's a lot on the cutting room floor that sort of, there's tons and tons that was cut from the film. And you can really see the scenes where someone's gone, we need to set this up, we need to set that up. Mm -hmm. And I think those bits frustrate me. But then, like, I don't think there's any bit of setting up a future film that I think was knowing where it's all gone now i'm like oh we needed that i don't think we did need any of it i mean knowing that there's what 20 odd other movies that i'm gonna watch mm. those little bits where it, it kind of did introduce a new character and then you might not have seen anything again i guess knowing in my head that i've got so much more to watch it was kind of like yeah. okay i know that that's probably going to mean something so in a way watching it now after after the fact that all these other ones have come out, mm. that was almost kind of exciting in a way because it was like, oh, okay, what's it's coming next? And, and you know? that's um, that's how it did actually work with, like I said, most of the fanboys and, like I said, not even fanboys, most of the people who knew that there was a universe being built here. Mm. That when we got these little tidbits, mm. it, it kind of split the audience. That you know, half of them were like, oh, what's that going to lead to? This is maybe is it the next film or is that yeah. something else in another Iron Man film? Then you had the other fifty percent of people that were like this means nothing. Yeah. yeah. Move on. Um, (laughs) So some people found it quite frustrating. So let's do a deep dive of the film because uh, I'm very intrigued to know more about both of your thoughts. So in Russia, the media covers Tony Stark's disclosure of his identity as Iron Man. Ivan Vanko, whose father, Anton Vanko, a former Stark Industries employee, has just died. He he sees this and begins building a miniature arc reactor similar to Stark's. Six months later, Stark is a superstar, and he uses his Iron Man suit for peaceful means, resisting government pressure to sell his designs. To continue the legacy of his father, Howard, he reinstitutes the Stark Expo in New York City. So I think let's start with quite literally one of the big boys. What did we think of Mickey Rourke as Whiplash? Or Ivan Vanko? 
I want my boyd. My boyd. I want my, my boyd. My boyd. Um, I mean, he apparently went to like Russian prisons and sort of did all this research and stuff. Why? <laughs> it's not a very good performance. He he definitely went very method in the role, if that's you know you can use that word. He really wanted to go really in depth with the character for sure, and he was he was he was a very sought after actor around mm. Iron Man two time because he just won the actor uh, the Oscar sorry for best actor at the Oscars for the rest. He didn't win the Oscar though. Did he not? I thought no. It's Sean Penn for Milk. Sean Penn, because I remember we were I, we were at uni the time that came yeah, out. and yeah. I remember thinking at the time, this is a tangent, but thinking Sean Penn has every opportunity to get another Oscar because he's you know he's got, had a long career. Mickey Rourke was this was like his comeback. Mm. He, I thought to myself that he's not going to get another opportunity like this. No, just give him the goddamn Oscar because he was <laughs> great in the wrestler. And they didn't, and he ain't yeah. is he? I'm mad too, right? Giving me the Oscars. No, most definitely not. Uh, Colin, what did you think of Whiplash? I thought he looked the part. Mm. Visually, I thought he looked cool. I thought that his yeah. suit was pretty awesome, especially the scene in the um, the Grand Prix bit. You know, yeah. We will when, get into that for sure. But yeah, I mean, you know, it, it's sort of very, he was very on the nose in terms of villain guy. Wasn't exactly. Uh, yeah, I would have loved deep, to have seen these lines. extra dimensions that he's been talking about for sure. Because uh, to me, I I want my villains to actually be villainous. Um, so sure, Whiplash. He has, like we said, he has a genuinely great action scene coming up soon, which we'll talk about. And I actually think the first thirty minutes of this film are fantastic. I love yeah. Stark's entrance to the expo. Uh, I love, love, love the Senate hearing at the beginning. I think Robert Downey Mm. Jr. is on fire during that scene. But then after that, the film, and in particular, its villain, I found it fizzled out a little bit for me. After those first 30 minutes, Whiplash never feels like a threat again. There's a Uh, great moment where they address the Don Cheadle casting, mm. where... Robert Downey Jr. walks up to him and he's like, I didn't expect to see you here. And he's like, look, it's me. I'm here. Deal with it. Let's move on. Yeah. <laughs> it's definitely. like a nice meta way of going, look, I'm not Terrence Howard. Get over it. Mm. So then, I know I'm sort of skipping towards the end here. So for the rest of the film, there was no tension for me in terms of whiplash, really. Because I think you're always going to struggle with your villain if he spends the next hour of the film locked away in a room talking about a a bird or a bloody parrot or whatever it was. Yeah. So like you said then, Rob, uh, so Don Cheadle, um, a suitable replacement for Terrence Howard or did Marvel screw up letting him go? No, I, I think he definitely had more sort of back and forth chemistry. I think he fits into the Marvel mold more than Terrence Howard's performance. Mm-hmm. Personally, like I think like when it comes to the sort of, the jokiness that Tony bounces off, I think he's better at sort of throwing that back at him. Okay. Cool. I think he's a better counterpart to Downey Jr. than Howard was. Mm. What about you, Colin? Um, well, I, I didn't really even notice much of Terrence Howard in the first movie, to be honest. I mean, oh, wow. he just came across like a sort of, you know, a colleague of Tony Stark's. I remember you saying you had issues, yeah. Mm. Well, not really issues. It's just he just didn't, he didn't. He was a fire in the wind. Um, yeah, he didn't have a lasting impression on me. Mm-hmm. 
I mean, I think the character as a whole was obviously developed more in this one. But that being said, there's a line that one of the guys says to him in the film and it's, you're like a sphinx, I can't read you. And I kind of felt like that almost summed up how I felt about Don Cheadle playing wow. him. Because... <laughs> oh, <here we> <laughs> Audio commentary fine. <laughs> Rob Colin has known you for three weeks oh. now, and I think he would have throttled you if you were in person. I love it. <laughs> so the I can't read you is like looking at a sphinx was something that Ed Asner said of another actor on the set of Elf whilst Favreau was directing him, and Ed Asner is the old man that played Father Christmas. So it's very possible he was saying that about Will Ferrell. Oh. But it's something that stuck in John Favreau's head. Good old Johnny Favs. So yeah, um, this whole Don Cheadle thing, to me, it just makes next time, baby, in the first one, very awkward. Yeah, yeah <laughs> That's yeah, why I love it so yeah, much. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, but I actually, yeah, I really like Don Cheadle as Rhodey. Um, but saying that, I actually think that Robert Downey Jr. maybe had more chemistry with Ten- Terrence Howard in the first film. But I also think that might be because obviously Rhodey and Stark are butting heads throughout this film. Mm-hmm. Their chemistry does develop as the films go on. So we'll continue. Later, Stark learns that the palladium core in the arc reactor that keeps him alive and powers the armour is slowly poisoning him, and he cannot find a substitute. Growing increasingly reckless and despondent about his impending death and choosing not to tell anyone about his condition... Stark then appoints his personal assistant, Pepper Potts, as the CEO of Stark Industries, and he hires employee Natalie Rushman to replace her as his personal assistant. Stark then competes in the Monaco Historic Grand Prix, where he is attacked in the middle of the race by Vanko, wielding electrified whips. Stark dons his armour and defeats Vanko, but the suit is severely damaged. Vanko explains his intention was to prove to the world the Iron Man is not invincible. Impressed by Vanko's performance, Stark's rival, Justin Hammer, fakes Vanko's death whilst breaking him out of prison and asks him to build a line of armoured suits to upstage Stark. So, I love, love, love Sam Rockwell as Justin Hammer. I think he is the perfect actor to go up against Robert Downey Jr., I think he always tends to bring this certain type of energy to the characters he plays. And it's always like maybe sometimes maybe this nervous energy. Um, He brings an incredible sense of physicality to his roles as well. I don't mean that just by that he dances in every film that he's in, which he does. Uh, And he (laughs) does here too, wonderfully, I must add. But I'm obsessed with like his line deliveries, especially after in the Senate hearing after Stark sabotages the TVs during the Senate hearing, and he plays a clip of a soldier having what looks like a, a pretty horrific injury whilst wearing a prototype suit. And he quickly rushes over to the mic and is like, I would like to add that that soldier survived. <laughs> um, I can't do it justice, but that kills me every time. Uh, how did we find Sam Rockwell in the MCU as Justin Hammer? I'm going to hold the trumpets because I'm, I'm, I'm reading the room. But on the audio commentary... Please don't hold the trumpets. Come on. <laughs> Rockwell, this wasn't the first time that he's gone up against Robert Downey Jr. Because he was on the original list to play Tony Stark. Makes perfect sense. When it come round to having a counterpart for him that was, as I call, a Poundland version of Tony Stark... John, Johnny Favs went over to Rockwell 
and got him involved because he's the perfect kind of sort of foil. Yeah. Colin, how'd you find him? Yeah, he was my, my favourite thing about the film, I think. Perfect. Yeah, every scene he was in, I think he stole it. And um, like we've said a lot, or I've said a lot, about the last couple of films, how a lot of the characters come across one-dimensional. And I think with oh. him, it was anything but that. It was, you know, when he was funny, he was really funny. And and I love the moments where he, he, he would just kind of flip and then just start, like, shouting his head off at something. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, I loved it. And, mm. and, yeah, the back and forth of all the other actors, I, thought, I just thought he was great, man. Yeah. yeah, his moment where he's like, I don't speak Russian. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, all of that. Loses and it. I think he was the one that said you're like a sphinx, actually, wasn't he, to Rhodes when he met him? I can't remember now. Yeah, I think yeah. so. It's in the, like, weapons montage. Yeah. yeah, he's so good. So, that Grand Prix sequence, um, I I actually, this is one of my favourite sequences in the MCU altogether, actually. I mean, obviously, they get bigger and grander and more expensive as the MCU goes on. But, to me, this is one of the most effective fight scenes there is. It's so good. Um, mm. Rob, what did you think of that sequence? It's a great sequence. It's very well shot, put together, all that stuff. Mm. I just wish there was like a tiny difference. I don't understand why Tony suddenly like, like what was Ivan's plan if Tony had just watched the Grand Prix? What was his plan to do? Oh, well, maybe he thought that Tony, whilst watching the Grand Prix, would still be like, get the suit out. This guy's doing this. Maybe, but I think that's just, it's just a little bit for me that I was like, if they just had it that Tony was going to Monaco to do this ridiculous thing, he's a rich knobhead, mm. <laughs> it still fits with the character and still makes sense that he's got a death wish because of the palladium and all that stuff. Mm. It For me, I just kind of a bit like, it reeked of that, oh, he's thought of every single thing that could happen, mm. including Tony Stark decided he's going to get in a Formula One car <laughs> and race. <laughs> It's very true. It's very true. That was the one bit that sort of feels a bit weird to me, but you're, everything you're saying is right. It is spectacular. It's well shot. Mm. That and, one shot yeah. of behind him as he's walking towards him, and when he turns the suit on it, it burns the clothes off his back. Mm. Yeah, oh. that was great. Yeah. Really, Just really walking good. into oncoming traffic is mm-hmm. pretty mental anyway, let alone Formula One <laughs> cars, like... And then you had that shot where there's just all of the Formula One cars exploding behind him. <laughs> He's just walking as if nothing's going on. Cool you've got guys love that. don't look yeah, exploding. You've got, you've got to love that in action movies, did <laughs> not you? Yeah, no, I really enjoyed it as well. The only thing that I found slightly laughable was whenever they'd shoot two old... Um, what was uh, Sam Rockwell's character? Hammer, was it? Justin Hammer, Hammer yeah. Justin where, Hammer. Whenever they shot to him and he just had all of the people behind him and like their facial reactions were just some, so, some of the extras were so very funny poor. yeah like that, that was the only part of it that was a bit like come on like put, put a bit Something. of in guys jesus christ this guy's like just turned up with giant fucking lightning bolt arms and he's <laughs> trying to fuck shit up and you lot you know you lot don't seem especially to that the race shit. is happening outside the windows i wouldn't be there i'd be long gone i'm half a mile yeah, down the road exactly. if that's yeah. happening outside my window yeah yeah but I'm no gone. i yeah i thought it was a great action scene yeah, you I, can tell that you can tell that the budget must have fucking God knows how many times mm. over from the first one because it's a much there bigger film than the first one. Yeah, much. it felt it felt bigger. It felt mm. much the Monaco bigger. stuff was nice as well because, like, actually, the audio commentary reinforced what something that you said, George, about it being like a Bond film is that Favreau actually said that he, you know, everything from Tony Stark coming out of the suit in a tux, you know, globe trotting going to Monaco, these grand sort of like. Mm. 
locations and sort of these big set pieces was very inspired by the Bond films that he grew up on. Wow. I think the thing I find interesting about that whole sequence is... Audio commentary <laughs> fact. I've got a lot of them. He was very good, Mr. Favs. i got a feeling what you're about to say is my trivia. And oh, I swear so to God. There was a cameo... Oh, thank God. ...from Elon Musk. Oh, yeah. Yep. Yes. In that, se- in that beginning sequence. And that was there so that they could film in SpaceX. So the later scenes with the, the drones and Justin Hammer are all set at uh, SpaceX. And he oh. said, as long as I can have a cameo, you guys can do that. Oh. And interestingly, Downey Jr. already knew him because he had contacted him during the making of Iron Man 1 to get, like, to sort of take hints off of Elon Musk and put that into his performance. Ah, that's crazy. Mate, you should have kept that as your trivia. <laughs> um, it's funny, because Elon Musk is is kind of the the real-life version of Tony Stark, isn't it? It mm. very much makes sense I mean, for him to yeah, be in really the does. film, for sure. Yeah, mm. yeah. It, it was weird sort of seeing it as well, now that... I mean, even then, he was a big, like, name. Well, but I'd be honest, then, when I first arrived, man, and obviously this was 10 years ago, I had no clue who Elon Musk was. So I didn't even know that was a cameo. So watching this now, like yesterday, I was like, oh, shit. I like, had no idea he was in it. Yeah. Talking of cameos, Excelsior! Oh, yes. He's at the beginning, wasn't he? <laughs> yeah. Stan Lee doing these performances, Larry King. Mm. Or did you just think that was Larry King this time? Yeah, <laughs> uh, I generally did. Yeah. <laughs> He's really, he's really fucking good, isn't he? He's good, yeah. He's, he's like, like a, a comedian. comedian. <laughs> yeah, he looks like Hugh Hefner and Larry King. I still don't know what he actually looks like. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much like a mixture of them two, yeah. RIP, though. But it's a really cool little sequence where he's doing the POV yeah. and sort of in Tony's point of view. There were some nice little moments like that. Mm. But yeah, just little tiny throwaway thing, him as Larry King. They might even start giving um, Stan Lee some lines soon, and um, he yeah. So you'll you'll come to know him for sure. Okay. So carrying on uh, during what he believes is his final birthday party, Stark gets drunk whilst wearing the Iron Man suit. Stark's best friend, the U.S. Air Force Lieutenant Colonel James Rhodes, he dons Stark's prototype armor and tries to restrain him. The fight ends in a stalemate, and Rhodes confiscates the armor for the U.S. Air Force. Now, I think there's about three big action set pieces in this whole film. So you've got the Monaco Grand Prix, I think I'm right here, the fight at Stark's house, and in the last 20, 25 or so minutes, which is quite a large extended action scene. Yeah. Is there enough action in the film, or was it paced to your to your liking? I, I like the amount of action, personally. And I thought it was quite varied. Hmm. And obviously the house fight ends up paying off in the final fight. Yes. Um, yeah, some of that is set That, up. that was yeah. nice. And yeah, I, it was lovely good. to see DJ AM. Obviously he sadly passed away yeah. shortly after. Just a couple of months after the film, yeah. And mm. in the credits, the um, film is actually dedicated to him. Yeah, Adam Goldstein. Yeah, so he did. That, that mix is great for the fight scene. I really enjoyed that. Slippy Robot Rock in there was... A nice touch. <laughs> Colin? Yeah, I thought the action was, was good. I thought it it didn't feel like there was too much of it. Wasn't getting you know, sometimes you get an action film and it's just like Jesus Christ, enough of the explosions. You tend to switch like off a, from it, yeah. Like a like a Transformers or something, you know. Mm. But um 
But no, I, I really liked it, and, and like I said, I felt like in the first one it was lacking a bit too much. Uh, it was lacking um, the action. Yeah. So, and and I liked the you know I thought it was done well, like you said, when those two first have the the fight, and then it comes back, and you know at the end they use that yeah that tactic to destroy what's his face. But yeah, I liked it. I I the whole Tony Stark being wankered at his party thing was a little cringy in places in mm-hmm. terms of just mm. I mean. You know, leave the DJ into the professional. I mean, we didn't need him fucking trying to scratch at the beginning, and uh, yeah. and then you know, and it was sort of all the the half naked ladies throwing up watermelons in the sky for him to explode mm-hmm. and stuff. I mean, I get it if you're that rich and you've got that shit. That probably is quite realistic, but it was a little bit. It was maybe an opportunity for them to go a little darker. To I see think so. Just how low his Ebb Stark was. Instead I like when of he least... roars at them in the suit. When he like roars at them at the end of the fight, he roars yeah. all the people to leave. That's, um, that's the sort of hint as to what they should have maybe gone down a bit. But then more. I think like that's the only scene when I think you see him actually drink alcohol in the whole film. Mm. And I think if they'd have done that, all those smoothies he was having was booze instead. That would that scene would pay off a lot more because it was like, oh, he's got a drinking problem, and it's in one scene. It just feels like a really cack-handed sort of. It handled. didn't feel like he had a drinking problem much to me. It felt like he was just having a blowout because it was his birthday mm. yeah so in a few scenes later when Rhodes finds Stark in his mansion sitting in the car in his lab and he's completely out of it I couldn't tell from that scene whether he was literally dying due to the toxicity in his blood or whether he was really drunk but I did really like that sort of the darkness of that scene as well mm. yeah that was the that was the one scene where I felt like you saw a bit more of the other dude's character kind of finding him like that. Yeah, for um, sure. But I, I, I didn't think it was because he was drunk, if I'm honest. I felt he like was, it was he because was dying, of his toxicity. Yeah. 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 Mm. Which I really like that um, that little story, like subplot or whatever, of, of the the arc, what is it called, thing inside? The arc him? reactor. Whatever. That's it, yeah. Like the fact that that's actually damaging him from mm. the inside. I well, thought that was really nice. He's got a massive God complex, hasn't he? So, what happens if suddenly God thinks he's got a couple of weeks left to live? And it brings yeah. on to the, I mean, everyone notices his God complex. That's why Ivan Vanko does the attack at the Grand Prix. He knows he's not probably not going to win that fight. Probably he didn't even want to win that fight. He just wanted to prove that God can bleed in his words. Yeah, that was the quote. If you can make God bleed, then people will cease to believe in him. And that that as as you know, as much as we've been we've been bashing on Mickey Rourke saying that he wasn't exactly that great, like that line hmm. was pretty cool. I, it was, like, that was quite that it was, was quite in all the trailers of, at the time. It was yeah. one of the things they oh, sold really? the film oh, right, on, yeah. yeah. If you can make God bleed, you <laughs> was it Forgot it, butchered it. Yeah, I can't. I can't mock you, Rock. God's sake. So uh, we'll start slowly wrapping this up now. So Nick Fury, director of Shield, approaches Stark, revealing that Rushman is actually Natasha Romanoff, and Howard Stark was a Shield founder whom Fury knew personally. Fury explains that Vanko's father and Stark invented the arc reactor together. When Anton tried to sell it, Stark had him deported. The Soviet sent Anton then to the Gulag. Fury gives Stark some of his father's old material, where Tony discovers a hidden message in the diorama of the 1974 Stark Expo. It proves to be a diagram of the atomic structure of a new element. So with the aid of his AI Jarvis, Stark synthesizes it. When he learns that Vanko is still alive, he places the new element in his arc reactor and ends his palladium dependency. So, 
Colin, what side of the argument, we may have already kind of touched upon this, so, so hopefully we're not repeating ourselves. What side of the argument do you stand on in regards to the inclusion of Black Widow and Nick Fury? So you said you enjoyed seeing these these setups, maybe, or these new characters, or even if you don't view them as setups, did you just enjoy having these new characters introduced, or was it too many ingredients in, in the recipe for you, so to speak? I, w- I wouldn't say it was too many ingredients at all. I think... Um... Black, I don't like you said she wasn't even referred to as Black Widow, so I wouldn't have even known that. But it doesn't matter. But um, Scarlett Johansson, mm-hmm. it was. I was a little bit unsure of of what they were trying to do to begin with when they brought her in because the chemistry between her and um, Robert Downey Jr. I, I couldn't quite put my finger on it. It was like I couldn't tell if they were just in the next scene they were going to like have ripped each other's clothes off and just <laughs> be going absolutely mad. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll talk about the ending bit, which kind of will, will throw back to what I'm saying there. But mm. So I was a little bit sort of like, well, where's this going? I mean, I, I knew, obviously, that she was going to be a bigger thing because although I haven't seen the films, I've seen enough posters and stuff over the years to know that she's right. a character. It was more of a, okay, like this is introducing something that I'm probably going to have to take notice of. So mm-hmm. I guess subconsciously I was... I was sort of okay with it just because I know that that there's so much about to go on. So it's hard for me to really answer that from like a a straight up, like, you know, this is the first time I'm watching this. I have no clue what's coming next. Obviously, Samuel Jackson, again, I've seen, I saw him at the post credit Mm -hmm. um, thingy of the first film. So it wasn't a shock to see him pop up. And he didn't really have the biggest role in the movie. I mean, you know, he he just sort of popped up every now and again. And, you know, it's Samuel Jackson, you know, fuck it. He's a bit bit of fun, isn't he? Almost all of the characters that they did introduce, maybe bar Mickey Rourke, I thought were great additions, especially Sam Rockwell. Like like I said, he stole the movie for me. So yeah, I didn't feel overwhelmed at any point that there was too many characters being thrown at me. Mm-hmm. So yeah. Perfect. Rob, what about you? I, I like a lot of this section of the film, weirdly. like I really like the stuff with Tony watching the video of his dad. There's a lot of great acting from... Downey Jr. where he's just he's like almost trying to ignore it looking through the books and it's yeah almost like resentfully like everything he's saying he's like rolling his eyes at Mm. until that moment where he says you were my greatest adventure and there's that like him saying thanks dad much like in the first film when he says like I never said goodbye to my my dad they don't sort of it doesn't feel like crammed down your throat I think the way he performs it is really great one of the biggest cliches you can find in a film or tv show is daddy issues and stark is obviously full of them but they really downplay it and i yeah Mm. i I very much agree yeah they do that really well i really like the moment where he um puts in the new element and downey judy's improv because the improv can like the first film was mostly sort of slapped together with improvised ideas and this film's the same but it doesn't necessarily i don't feel it always works I love his line where he says, that tastes like coconut and metal. <laughs> as, that as was improv. Like, yeah, as he's freaking out, yeah. Oh, that's cool. Uh, so, yeah, I luckily have what Colin doesn't have in this scenario, and that's hindsight. So I think I can I can remember seeing Iron Man 2 for the first time, and I think my first thoughts was that it was too overstuffed. So I can still agree somewhat to that, but... I can also appreciate Marvel did realise that other things did need setting up. And if we were going to have successful films or team up films in the future, that maybe it was best to slowly start planting these seeds. So another thing that occurred to me as well is that both Scarlett Johansson and Samuel L. Jackson's performances in this 
seemed very different to future performances in future installments. Um, so, because these two are meant to be the world's best spies, and in this film, I got no indication of that. They didn't seem like the two best spies in the world, these super spies, they call them. So, luckily, with hindsight, like I said, I can appreciate what Marvel were doing here. They did need to be in the film. Maybe they didn't overstuff it as much as I initially thought. And, yeah, we'll see what happens to them later down in the line. Yeah, because at the moment, S.H.I.E.L.D. doesn't seem like a particularly powerful thing. They pop up because, every, like you said. They pop up every couple of times, don't they, and just say... Uh, you yeah, know, they, but also, like, like you said, it's those two characters. They don't feel like these gigantic, powerful hmm. beings that have yeah. so much control over. Maybe they do, maybe they don't. I don't know. But, yeah, at the moment, currently... It doesn't seem like hmm. they're probably as powerful as I guess they are. Or yeah, I think they had like a, a difficult balance to make. And I think there's times where it can feel, where it feels a bit more crowbarred in. It's like there's moments where during that fight, Gwyneth Paltrow, like Pepper, turns to Natasha and is like, what's going on with you? It's all been going weird since you've turned up. And it's like, but we've she's only really been in one maybe two scenes with you and in both of those scenes she's just been doing her job that felt mm. weird like, to me like why would you yeah. suddenly jump on her like that yeah and it's like because they suddenly realise at that point in the film we need the audience to know that she's more than just a receptionist and it's like or a legal sort of aid mm. so they have to have that line in and it sort of feels a bit like oh like a fix kind of thing rather mm-hmm. than something that was planned yeah mm. but like yeah, in hindsight, obviously, it's quite nice to see those characters because it becomes more. Yeah, oh, for sure, yeah. At the expo, Hammer unveils Vanko's armoured drones, led by Rhodes in a heavily weaponized version of the prototype armour. Stark arrives to warn Rhodes, but Vanko takes remote control of all the drones and Rhodes' armour and attacks Stark. Hammer soon gets arrested for breaking Vanko out of prison, whilst Romanoff and Stark's bodyguard, Happy Hogan, go after Vanko at Hammer's factory. Vanko escapes, but Romanoff returns control of Rhodes' armour to him. Together, Stark and Rhodes defeat Vanko and his drones. Vanko then commits suicide by blowing up his suit along with the defeated drones. So, that final set piece. In my head... I seem to have always always told myself over these last 10 years since the film got released that the last fight scene in Iron Man is a bit crap. Um, so I've never really revisited the, 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 the fight scene. But I was quite involved for the most part in this final mm. set piece. I actually think it's actually quite an exciting scene. You know, Stark being chased by all these drones and him doing everything he can to avoid whatever they're throwing at him whilst also trying to save civilians. I was on board. Um, when him and Rhodey landed in that almost like Japanese-looking garden at the end, I did say to myself, okay, here we go, because I was ready for it to kind of fall apart. But there were some nice action beats in that scene as well. So I think the action is quite hard-hitting. Um, mm. I loved that every time they punch one of these drones, they almost seem to like bleed oil. So then by the end of the fight scene, both Stark and Rhodey are just covered in it. They look like they've had a proper battle. But to me, personally, uh, it's only when Vanko returns and they fight him wearing a giant metal suit, suddenly I felt like I was watching Iron Man 1 again and I started to lose a little bit of interest. Um, I also think maybe the the filmmakers lost interest 
in that fight scene too because it's ridiculously short when Vanko returns. And, and it, you know, thinking back onto that Grand Prix sequence, this fight scene, he's nowhere near as menacing or intimidating as he was in that sequence in the Grand Prix. Um, am I talking up my ass or, or are we? No, I agree. I think he blew his load in that Grand Prix scene, didn't he? Mm. Yeah. Oh, I don't remember that bit. Maybe that was. <laughs> Do you remember that? That was on the cutting room floor as well. That, that wasn't on the audio commentary, was it? Um... <laughs> My boy. <laughs> but um, yeah, I agree, man. And one thing that I kind of picked up on throughout this film, which I don't really know how to feel about it, but. In my head, superhero movies, and I find it hard to even call this a superhero movie. I think that's what I'm, what I'm getting at. Because when I think back to the superhero films I have seen, the ones that stick out the most in my head are the the Tobey Maguire Spider-Man mm-hmm. films, and um, like probably like the X-Men movies, and especially the Spider-Man films. It was normally Spider-Man versus like a more creature. Mm-hmm. You know, like a big villain, like you had Green Goblin and then you had, what was it, Doctor Octopus or whatever. Yeah. I mean, I know he's a person, but it was this bigger character. Whereas in this film, it didn't really feel like there was that one big yeah. entity that was about to destroy the whole world. Like I said, I want my villains to be villainous yeah, yeah. and to feel like a massive threat. And there was only a 10 minute sequence in this film where I felt like everyone was threatened. Yeah, and and I think like... The, the scene at the expo where all of the drones are, are going off and I, I really enjoyed the bit when, when Iron Man and, and War Machine are, are taking those out in that garden that you said mm. and the fact that, and the fact that you've, they're almost taking it in turn showing off what their suits can do. You've got War Machine that's got all the missiles mm-hmm. and the bullets and stuff and then you've got Iron Man that's got the more lasers and the yep. you know, fire. I really enjoyed that. But there was moments in it where I was like, this, this doesn't really feel like a superhero movie. And to be honest, I don't know if that's why I enjoyed it so much. Oh, here we go. Here we go. Audio commentary fact. So, let me find it. Should have got it ready beforehand. <laughs> I've blown my load like old Mickey Rourke. So, for that end sequence, there's a reason why the action is so good. So, are any of you aware of samurai jack or um powerpuff girls and those shows so samurai jack was a cartoon network show by a guy called gendy tartofsky he also did the clone wars sort of star wars cartoons right yes i've heard but that yeah he has done like he's known for like samurai jack the whole thing is this badass samurai but he's just always killing robots so that's how they get around it being a kid's cartoon and loads of violence because it's much like this. Yeah. So John Favreau got his advice. He's like, look, I've got this scene. I need this to be spectacular, but I need it to be... How do you make violence against robots look spectacular? Mm. So he came in and storyboarded it with another guy called Brian something. I've forgotten his surname. Sorry, Brian. And they... Yeah, Brian. <laughs> Sos, mate. I'm sure he's not He does listen. <laughs> so he... Some of the beats that I loved the most from this sequence come from him. There was the moment where Tony flies past all the parked cars and one alarm goes off, then all the drones fly past and let off all the alarms. There's flying into the globe and sort of setting a flight course and all the other drones blowing up behind him. Mm-hmm. All that final fight in the against the other drones in the sort of peace garden including the laser was his idea. He was like, Tony should have this laser that just cuts them all in half. <laughs> oh, that was brilliant. And then man. the crew came on and said, 
why wouldn't he just use that straight away? So then Robert Downey Jr. is like, we'll just lean into that. Let's make him laugh. Like It's a one-use thing. Have, yeah, and have Rhodey go, why, why didn't you lead with that? <laughs> so yeah, that's why that sequence worked. And I didn't know that until today. But like knowing that now and knowing his work, I'm like, that 100% makes sense to mm. me. Yeah, that really, really works. Cool. So, But I, I do also agree, though, the Ivan Vanko bit was kind of just... Yeah, <laughs> I think there was a reason why they only gave him a few minutes at the end. They're He's like, got yeah, five minutes of... tops. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But I think if if an actor had come up to me and was asking me every five seconds, "Oh, did you keep the shot in about the burr drinking vodka?" I'd be like, yeah, "Mate, just cut it. I can't be can't be dealing with him." <laughs> Has he done He's... much since this? Lots no, of strange DVD stuff. Yeah, really? Expendables three. Oh, one or two. He was in. That I think that's the that biggest thing he's been. But like he um. You know that whole bit when he's like software shit? Yeah, <laughs> he's just yeah. complaining the whole time. I imagine he was like that on set. It's like script <laughs> shit. Not doing it. And see, I, I can imagine he wasn't the easiest person to work with as much mm. as he got screwed over with his character depth. I mean, that's just me imagining it. It could be completely wrong. Who knows? So then, Colin, final thoughts on the film? I know you've kind of gone through everything, but any last things to add? I mean, one thing I will add, which I thought, and and a character that we haven't really taken any time to talk about was old Peps. Yeah. Pepper. Um, there were moments where I felt like they they fleshed her character out quite a bit more than in the first movie, mm-hmm. but I really didn't get the kiss. The kiss at the end. Yeah. Okay. It just, I felt like there was very little sort of build up to that. It. it I don't know. It just felt completely unnecessary to me. It didn't add anything to the movie. Yeah. I didn't feel the same sort of tension, romantic, whatever you want, a sexual tension that you did mm. from the first one. I didn't feel like that was even there in the second one. I felt like, if anything, he was going to be kissing Scarlett Johansson's character at some point in the movie. Yeah, well, he's he's obviously very attracted to um, Natasha Romanoff or whatever you want to call her in this film. And they do make a very... They make a joke out of that, that she's, you know, a lawsuit waiting to happen, really. Um, mm. But I, it never occurred to me until you just said it there that I think if that kiss had happened at the end of Iron Man 1, that would have felt more in place. Definitely. But those sort yeah. of very, like, the, the cute scenes between them was quite lacking in Iron Man 2 and maybe would have given us more of a payoff to that kiss. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it, I just felt completely unnecessary. Hmm. I um, I liked what they did for making her CEO and giving her something. They definitely made more, her character more She wasn't powerful, like a damsel, really. It was like everyone was in trouble in that expo. So, yeah, and I liked... Um, there's a moment, actually, that I, I've only really noticed through, on this watch-through. When he's really, really drunk, a lot of that scene is so loud and obnoxious that it doesn't work for me. But there's a moment where she tries to shut the party down and he just goes, I love you, to her, whilst mm. pissed. Which makes, like, I think it's a nice choice, because you, it's the kind of thing you would admit to someone when you're, you're pissed mm. and you think you're going to die. Yep. But to to her, it's just, oh, you're, you're drunk, you're an idiot. Like, a, it's nothing to her, but to him it probably is something, in hindsight. But that's, I mean, I've seen the film God knows how many times Yeah, now, to be honest, so. I didn't even pick up on that. He so, does say I mean, it very, very quickly, yeah. It's very quick, yeah. I agree, like a, that end kiss, because they've been so off for the whole film with each other, because she's rightfully pissed with him, mm-hmm. that doesn't work. But then I don't know if I'd want to sacrifice Rhodey's get a roof. Oh, <laughs> whole, like, you, two, you look like whole... two grapes fighting over a seal. 
Two no. seals fighting over a grave. <laughs> I remember that on planet Earth, wasn't it? Oh, no. Look at these two grapes fighting over a seal. The beauty of nature. Oh, fantastic. Oh, what have I done? Superb. <laughs> That's going to be a T-shirt. Two grapes oh, fighting over a seal. I love that line as well. I just butchered it. <laughs> I've gone dizzy. I've gone dizzy. I laughed so hard then. Oh, Jesus. It's a good line. They look like yeah. two seals fighting over a grape. Jesus. I think that was the scene where I was like, okay, I'm happy to see him come back as Rhodey and War Machine. And because he's, once he was in the costume, him and Tony are fine. They got to the end. He's like, no, I'm keeping the suit, all that stuff. I'm like, yeah, yeah I'm on board. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think he's cool. Cool. Um, so, Colin, did you want to finish? Do you have any more final thoughts, or was that it? Yeah, I mean, there's probably not that much more I can add, really. But I, I generally enjoyed the film. I thought it was slightly better than number one, or at least I enjoyed it more. Mm-hmm. Um, and so far, it's my favourite out of all three. Wow, very cool. Uh, Rob, what about you? Final thoughts? Um, we haven't discussed the scene after this, after the roof, mm. where they're in. He goes to Shield, doesn't he? Of course, and he yeah. gets given his evaluation. Mm. Oh, yeah. And this ties into what we was actually talking about last episode with the consultant. So the the one shot that they did where Tony is made a consultant that goes and chats to General Ross. Mm-hmm. So this comes in where Sam Jackson's like, "Oh well, you know, you don't play well with others and that sort of thing," which may be a dig at Edward Norton. Who knows? <laughs> Um, but yeah, that scene is like chock a block with little Easter eggs and things, isn't it? And it's sort of, there's footage of the Hulk on the screen, which I thought was interesting. So it places Iron Man 2 as happening before the Hulk happens. Mm-hmm. Hmm. And there's a couple of, yeah, there's a couple of pause sequences in the film as well. So one thing, hmm. um, when stark is talking to fury at the end of that film and if you pause it obviously there's a can you remember a map behind them uh not really there is a large there's a large map with certain cities all highlighted uh, as they speak and behind them one of the cities reads wakanda which for the fans that noticed it Hold on, I think I know this reference. Got very, very excited. Mm. Is it a Black Panther thing? Black, a character from the comics called Black oh, Panther, okay. maybe from Wakanda. Yes, um, and obviously I forgot to include this in my notes as well. But we see, we get to see the Captain America shield. Yeah, I even picked mm. up on that one. Yeah, he uses it to prop up the uh, mm. the bit of equipment, which was he? in Howard Stark's possession. Mm, we shall mm. see. <laughs> Twiddling the moustache. Um, so, oh, Rob, any final thoughts? No, not really. I, it's I kind of warm to it without like the the more films that come out. So, like, I enjoy it still. Mm. Like, um, the things that bug me when I first watched it don't bug me so much, and I can kind of just go with it and have fun. Mm-hmm. Like the little angry nerd in me sort of dies each time. So I'm like, it's fun, goddammit, just enjoy it. <laughs> <laughs> like, forgive the, the silly bits that don't make sense or the bits that are crowbarred yeah. in. Just watch it. It's fine. Like, yeah, for me, it's. 
it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> so, what about you, George? Uh, yeah, like I said to you last week, Colin, I think um, I said out of the 23 films we've got so far, there are three films I would consider to be below par. One of them being Incredible Hulk. To me, mm. I always included Iron Man 2 in there. Oh, damn. Um, I would say maybe it's gone above below par now. Uh, it's, mm. as Rob says, it's fine. It it does the job for me. Um, I am so happy, though, that you enjoyed it. Cause yeah, it's pretty mad, isn't it? Our audience won't know this, but we had a little toilet break ten minutes ago. And when you got up and left, Colin, I said to Rob, yeah. if he liked Iron Man 2, we've got him. <laughs> oh, right, okay. It, <laughs> it is considered to be... When it not a, not the best of, of the MCU films, but over time maybe people have found more to appreciate in it as well. And I certainly did watching it. Here. I had the most fun I've had watching the film ever when I watched it yesterday. So there is a lot to like in there. So let's get into our ratings then. Mm. So Rob, out of five, where does Iron Man two place? Hmm. <laughs> Interesting, because I don't think it's as equal as the first one for me. And you gave that so, a three. Yeah, so I would have to, by that logic, go... I don't think it's nowhere near as bad as Incredible Hulk, which I gave, what, one? Cannot remember. No, you gave it a two, I think. <laughs> I think you gave it a two. I gave it a two? Yeah. You, may, you might need to use up your... <laughs> your, your, your I might have to, <laughs> yeah. change the No, I'm going to go two and a half. Mm. Colin... I'm going to go three and a half. Great. I am two and a half as well. So, trivia competition time. You know too much for your own good. Now, that's what I call using the old head. I'm not going to go into details as to what this competition is, because I'm sure you already know by now. Rob, did you go first last week? Yes. So, I guess that leaves it to me. Yeah, mate. Okay. It's on you, George. Are you ready, Colin? I'm ready, mate. Let's do it. So Marvel were actually all set to film the Grand Prix, the Grand Prix sequence at the actual Monaco Grand Prix. But only weeks before the sequence was actually set to be shot, the head of Formula One, a Bernie Eccleston, changed his mind and denied them access to film at the Grand Prix. So, like I said, this whole film was like a ticking time clock really so with time so tight to get the film ready for its release the sequence was actually filmed in the car park of marvel studios and all of the formula one cars that you see were computer generated during that sequence that's my fact and i think you cannot tell that at all there's a couple of stock shots towards the beginning of the actual what the grand prix is but the fight scene was shot in a car park like we said i think it's an incredible sequence i genuinely cannot believe they shot they didn't shoot that in the actual monaco grand prix and i think you wouldn't be able to tell the difference between what they what if they shot it at the grand prix compared to what they shot in a bloody car park that yeah no that's that's great man that's very impressive i don't want to bolster your fact as well but there's like little things on the commentary about um bolster it and using (laughs) <laughs> so happy's car obviously is a practical car which helps base the rest of it in realism mm. because he's driving against mm. i can't believe we didn't talk about the suitcase suit 
Yeah, the suitcase suit was cool. That was pretty badass. <laughs> um, right, so... Uh, come on then, man. You're up. Mm, I'm up. You like music, don't you, Colin? I do indeed, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, did you notice on the end credits... After, I know you're not an ACDC fan. Oh, so we'll, man, we'll, that's one thing they've got to ditch on the next one. Jesus we won't Christ, dwell on there's that. other rock bands out there. Go on, sorry. So after that, after that's long gone, we're not, we're not talking about that. Such a brown nose. There's a track, I know, well, I've got to win, George. There's a track that call, is called Make Tomorrow Today, and it sounds like an expo kind of old-fashioned sort of upbeat, retro piece um this was made specifically for the end credits by a guy called richard sherman or dick sherman to his friends who was or still is i think i think he's still alive a brother pair of brothers basically and they did loads of disney music they did the music for mary poppins they did the songs for jungle book aristocats not only that but they did the all the pavilion music for the disney parks including the World of Tomorrow showcase, which then ties into Howard Stark's uh, Expo music. Um, And this was before Marvel was bought by Disney. So it works as a nice little sort of bit of foreshadowing to what was to come. Mm, Two very good facts there. They were good, man. That's a tough one. I mean, how do we play this? If it's so hard, do we roll to number two, or do I have to pick one of the first? It's only if I don't like the I first think it's thing. only if we did Duplicate, wasn't it? That we okay, had Duplicate, to go to or if I'm just not that impressed with either of them, I guess. Yeah. yeah. But although that's not the case this time. Damn, so I've actually got to pick one of these. Oh, Rob. I mean, come on, man. I love it. I love the music stuff. I mean, oh. but then George, I mean, that, that's impressive. Shot in a car park, Colin. <clears throat> that is impressive. But, but I mean... This is a car park at a movie set, right? A movie studio. So it's not like you're doing it at the back of Tesco's in Thetford, is it? You, you don't like... Do you like car parks, Colin? <laughs> I mean, I'm not the biggest fan. Or do you like music? <sighs> I do like music. And uh, because of that, I appreciate the fact that Rob has, has sort of lent straight into what I like. So, you know, take note, George, for future trivia sections. Okay. And Rob, you get the point, mate. You get okay. it. Okay. Thank you. Two How long one. have you known Colin, George? <laughs> Too long now. Feel like you don't know him at all. <laughs> <laughs> An additional fact as well. I was going to throw this in, but I thought it might be seen as too brown nosy. The score for the film. Do you know who did it? Um, I cannot remember. Tom Morello of Rage Against the Machine. Oh, did he really? really? Wow. <laughs> should have should have led with that one, mate. There wouldn't have been any. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it's you know obviously set up because he cameoed in the first Iron Man. So that's another week of Colin Brain versus the MCU. Thank you all for listening. Please uh, subscribe, rate, review. Uh, It all means the world and it all helps us get out there to more fellow MCU nerds. So, Rob, say bye. Goodbye. Colin, say goodbye. Bye-bye. So join us next week. Now, surely, Colin... I've got a guess. I'm about to say... I'm about to introduce the next film, but can you guess it, actually, based on... I would say it's Thor. Hmm. Join us next week as we take a trip to Asgard in 2011's Thor. Next time we meet, 
Let it be in peace and friendship. This is as far as you're going to get tonight. Such valuable stuff. All in a nice work. Sweet dreams, little friends. But we're not quite done yet. So, now, this is how you do a post-credit sequence. So, compared to the last scene of Incredible Hulk, this is a perfect setup. Yes, we are... But... Yes, we are watching Thor next week. So, Colin, do you know anything about Thor? No, not really. Just that he's a got the hammer and... Is it Norse? Norse mythology? Yeah, he, he is a god, essentially. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, do you know? So, obviously, you know what was found in the desert during this scene. Then, it, like you mm-hmm. said, it was it was Thor's hammer. So, this scene was actually even filmed by Thor's director Kenneth Branagh. It's not a scene from Thor the film itself. It was shot exclusively just as a post-credit scene for Iron Man Two. Um, Rob, do you have any thoughts on this post-credit scene? I mean, it's effective. So, I mean. So, did it not work for you then? If, if you don't really know Thor, Colin, did it make you maybe intrigued? Did it, what did it do? I, I it's, again, it's kind of hard for me because I mean, surely you guys knew what my, everyone would have known what Thor is. I mean, you might not know much about him, but you know of him. Yeah. So, it so that's was, why for I'm me, quite was... intrigued anyway. Because I know if if me and Rob maybe would have saw that post credit scene for the first time, we just, would have yeah. left very happy. I kicked out because <laughs> yeah. I said last week I used to watch the Incredible Hulk TV show, and Thor was in one of those, mm. so I already knew who like Thor was, albeit a sort of weird, cramped mm. version of him. Yeah. <laughs> so I was proper excited. For me, it, it just adds like a, a, a great element of intrigue. Mm. There was nothing. There was no negative experience from the post-credit scene. I thought it was cool. I mean, you know, obviously the hammer being in this giant crater in the desert or wherever it was, it was. Mm. Clearly showing that um, whoever this character is has an enormous amount of power. Um, mm. And yeah. I think creating intrigue is exactly what a post-credit scene exactly. should do. So yeah. I guess it worked. It was a yeah, it was good for Perfect. me. I'm looking forward to watching. So it. see you next week, everyone. Again, thanks for joining us. Stay safe. Stay well. Stay nerdy. Take it easy. See you later, true believers. <laughs>